code completion. Tools that tell you that, hey, you are probably trying to type something like this. It, it hasn't been like a clear evolution that says, hey, now we are using AI, try it out. No, before they've just used like statistical maps on this is the most probable thing that you're doing. And then behind the background, without even telling you, many companies have built quite complex predictive models on what code should look, look like and kind of enhance that experience even without you knowing. Hello and welcome to DevOps Sauna. Arthur C. Clarke, an English science fiction writer, science writer and a futurist once said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. The artificial intelligence has long been a promise for supercharging software development productivity. Is it that? Or is AI becoming this proverbial hammer that we use indiscriminately just because it's in vogue? We invited two people to discuss about the artificial intelligence in DevOps. Henry Terho, Chief R&D Evangelist at Kentinel, and Lauri Hufta, a DevOps consultant and a data engineer at Efficode. Let's tune in. Thank you for taking the time, Henry and Lauri. Good to have you in the DevOps Sauna podcast. And I have to start by telling a little story how we got to here. Uh, which was that I stumbled upon Henry your podcast and uh, what was it called again? Oh yeah, me and uh, Nikhil Sharma run a podcast called Software Sauna, uh, and now we are in the DevOps Sauna at this moment. Uh, so, so I think that was what we were already looking for. Absolutely, yeah. I wanted I wanted to get you out with with the sauna name of the podcast, and it's a co- it's such a sheer coincidence coincidence that they are two sauna podcasts. But then somebody told me that F-Secure also has a sauna podcast. Do they? I haven't validated it, but maybe I should have. Yeah, every single Finnish software company makes a sauna podcast or something. Or every Finnish company makes yeah. The idea that comes to their mind is, that let's link this to saunas. It's a Finnish thing. So that might be. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Original idea. And would. it's not only the sauna uh, in relation to the podcast, but also the, the offices. And a uh, long, long time ago, when Hewlett Packard opened their office uh, to Finland, when back in time, Hewlett Packard had a rule that their offices uh, shall only have up to three floors. And uh, in Niittukumpu, which in Espo, where their office is located, the fourth floor is their sauna, and that is on the roof. And uh, according to the story, they actually had to go through the burden of persuading their headquarters to accept that they have four floors in the office. But but luckily, the only thing that happens in there or is located in the fourth floor is the sauna. <laughs> yeah, it seems like that uh, FCU has a cybersecurity sauna also. There, there we go. So validated. It, it, is, it is really proliferating. Um, today, we are talking about very, very famous topic. And I would say that some people really know a thing or two about it. And I'm referring to the people on the line now. But this has also been a a popular topic um, because it has been easy to gain popularity and attention by talking about our topic, which is AI. And as we were discussing about this subject, we resorted to talk about the role of artificial intelligence in DevOps tool chain. 
So why don't we start with the first question and, and try to get at the definition. How, do, how should we define AI in DevOps? Maybe I can take the floor because um, I usually have a headache when people talk about AI because it's, well, it became so quickly like a hype word. So the people who are actually working technically in with it, uh, it kind of takes, takes the power out of those that it's just thrown around as a hype word. So I actually, for this, I Googled uh, three definitions, how people see AI and I'm going to just quickly go through them. And uh, as you can, you will see, they kind of vary a lot. So the first definition I found was that AI is engineering of making intelligent machines and programs. And I would say if you work in tech and you make some kind of programs, you can give them a, like a large set of rules. They are intelligent, but I wouldn't say that they fill the definition of AI just yet. And the second one that I found was maybe getting a bit closer. They said that AI would be a technique that enables machines to mimic human behavior. And um, that, well, maybe in the dis decision-making front, that would be right. But um, we can already accomplish something like that with scripting and automation. Like we can, we can make a, a program that acts kind of like a human. But I think the third one that I found is what resonates with me the most. I think this is the, what I would, I, I would aim to talk about AI in this form. The third definition was a program that can sense, reason, act and adapt. So with AI, it's important that we have a, we've taught it with data and it can sense, sense the environment, sense the data, it can reason, act, and then adapt to the situation. But when we are building something with AI, we wanted to accomplish something that we haven't set a tight set of rules for it. So we wanted to see new situations and knowing how to react and adapt to those situations. So I think when we talk about AI, we should understand that uh, we, we could do a lot of things which kind of resemble like a human kind of actions, but we wanted to know more than that. We want, wanted to learn itself, hence the machine learning. What do you say, Henry? Yeah, I think there's there's three very good definitions, and now that you've laid out those definitions, then I can go go through them and debunk a little bit about them, and maybe we can end up into a little bit of a better definition, maybe through that. If you're thinking about that, yeah, the first one, engineering of making intelligent machines and programs, that as you said, that's super vague. What 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 is intelligence? What is an intelligent machine? We can do many machines. Basic computer is a lot more intelligent in, for example, doing maths than a human, and. The definition is not really there. And the second one was the mimicking human behavior. Typically, when we talk about AI, we, we just don't want it to mimic human behavior. We, we want it to do something better than humans. So, for example, well, again, computers are still better than in maths than we are in, in general sense. But typically wanting some kind of a amalgamation of these two, that there's, there's a way for us to interact with the system or the AI, AI or something in a much more human relatable way. And I think the last one that says since reason act and adapt, uh, that's that's quite quite an uh, 
intelligent definition of AI as it then doesn't limit it to mimicking humans, for example, in the way that it performs. It can be something that, for example, is, well, one thing is here is how do we want to talk about it? It's something that we cannot fathom or understand. Is it, well, it certainly is intelligent. Do we want to limit it to something that we understand is a really good question. Of course, these go totally to the future and not to the definitions of what we probably talk about as AI is now AI is mostly just uh, PowerPoint. So, so that might be the current the current thing. But I think one one major thing is also uh, deterministic versus non-deterministic systems. That in deterministic systems we can kind of uh, see what's happening and we can always go back through all of the reasoning chains and all of that and uh, and kind of check the math on what's actually going on and we know wh where the whole system ends up. But then uh, typically AI systems or mammal systems are non-deterministic, so they are really difficult to know what's what's the actual what's actually happening next and what what's happening on what's the processing in there because it's so complex of course processors in themselves if you go down to the architectural level are deterministic but you get some non-deterministic behavior from there if you use a lot of self-learning and other kind of uh, algorithms on top of it which is still a really interesting discussion even on on how the neurons work in our brains but that's then going again into a total different level so i i, I kind of like the last uh, Last definition, the best here. I was thinking about this mimicking human behavior and now in the context of DevOps. Uh, um, it's hard to talk about DevOps without talking about automation. And especially in the context of automation, it is more true than anywhere else what you said about not like explicitly not mimicking, like test automation. Like why on earth would anyone mimic a human behavior considering that the whole role of test automation is to try to do it in a such a way where everything is repetitive and can be done in like over and over again without exhausting the re the resource i.e. the human and then the the other interesting thing about what you very very last said about the some systems being non-deterministic i really have to look that up i remember uh, like sort of evolutive experiments from the late 90s where they take a fpga circuit so field was it called field programmable gate array? But it's basically a hard, like a programmable hardware circuit that can simulate a, a certain definition of, of gates. And then they applied an evolutionary behavior to that. Uh, so they basically, you spawn a few of these configurations and then you pick the best of them. And then you then again use them as an input and spawn another configuration of, of sort of gate arrays. And you do it like 10,000 um, generations or something. But like, remember that the starting point is very, very deterministic. Like they are, they are basically Boolean gates uh, and you build configuration of Boolean gates. Uh, but when you do it 10,000 evolu uh, evolutions or generations, and when you look at the output, it's inexplicable in that those engineers who designed the original gate arrays and the configuration, they cannot explain how the outcome works. Yeah, I would agree that as as the human brain and as the machine, they kind of learn to live in the environment that they've been working in. So as they get that data, there's the initial data, but then of course, when you um, send, send it in production or actually use it, then it actually sees that there's this kind of, um, it, it can sense different kind of things and it will adapt to those. And in that point, yeah, the engineers wouldn't 
really know how to explain how it makes those decisions at least very easily that there's some little bit of electricity that comes to it but i i think when we talk about ai uh we we quite fast go to the um explanation that it's this black box that just gives us answers that uh, data scientists just build this black box and fill it with data and it gives us answers and sometimes um, that kind of takes the power out of the initial work that the data scientists do because in the beginning it's really understandable machine learning algorithms that based on like you know algebra and mathematics and then then there's the deep deep learning so if you just say that this field is um, black box that you fill in data uh, and no one understands it it's kind of um, it's it's understandable how very technical people get annoyed by that definition because then it seems like they are not the one who build it and actually have the knowledge to make something that can make these um, answers and solutions that we wouldn't initially come up with yeah that's a, that's maybe one of the like uh points also that uh, typically these AI systems can, can reach states where we didn't think that they would end up in, in, in that kind of a figure out things that we as humans didn't, for example, figure out in, in, in different kind of an optimization path. And uh, that's also the value in the system that basically you're saying that AI should behave like humans, but really the most of the power comes from a different kind of a end result in there that it ends up in different situations because, for example, it can read data much more better or check for correlations much better in the mathematical data sense and then create models in there but based on the same kind of neural neural thinking for example now that neural networks are in fashion in ai field what comes to your mind uh, when you first think about uh, sort of app, uh, available applications of ai in devops so which where should companies start or where should teams start when they are looking to adapt AI to DevOps? Well, at first, I would say that before you start seeking into doing something with AI, you should have established a good data infrastructure because uh, as the um, machine learning models and uh, all the neural networks and deep learning has gone further and further, and it started with like just building them <clears throat> building the models and people were focusing on that with their data scientists uh now they are real- realizing that the importance of data the amount of it and how good quality data or how it's processed to be a good quality data that's a huge factor so you should before you in your company think about like doing AI. I think it's wise to see like, do we actually have the data? Do we have the data processes already running? Yeah, and, and kind of people are starting to figure out it's it's not moral, it's, it's as you said, the input is, is is really important for it as, as pretty much the AI themselves generate the models. So so those have been becoming of second importance and most of the data and getting it into such a shape that we can enter it somewhere. And there's a whole another field of uh, basically AI researchers now looking into how to make these data pipelines in such a way that we don't have to massage the data or clean it up or anything else. If you talk to any of the like uh, people who are involved in AI, they're going to say that most of their working time goes to actually 
making the data into a concise format. There's also errors. There's always in different formats coming from different places and kind of using 90, 90% or even 95% of their time to actually do data janitorial tasks. And then they're just clicking run model and it's generate model for that data, basically. So most of the time is going into that anyway. So super important to getting that, that figured out. How comparable are the models from each other between vendors? So if we think about the data model, if we say that the data model and data labeling is critical, um, well, Henry, if I if I understand what if I if I understand what what you said, and if I try to paraphrase that, was that it is okay if the data model is not complete and perfect because we can apply sort of learning into that data model itself. But but I would it sort of intuitively it means that when the data model is more clean and more aligned between different business systems, then it would be more powerful. But how how important is that after all? Really good question. I, I think it also becomes uh, about the value of the data and how comparable the data are from the two sources. And quickly, even if you have two vendors, well, I'm guessing you're talking about you have your software running in two different platforms, for example, mm. Amazon and Microsoft they might not report the same things or, or think that the same stuff is important when, when you're running that. So if the data is not compatible in that way, then it's, of course, difficult to integrate. But if the data is the same it's just in a different format, then it's just a matter of kind of uh, normalizing that data into a unified format, be it by humans or be it by some uh, self-learning. So, so there, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of stuff going on in there that you can take basically any data and just look at the correlations in, in there uh, and learn something new from there. But it's quite important for companies nowadays to really think on how they are storing their data to make it as easy to do this step as typically this step take a lot of effort. And if you've already thought about it even a little bit before you start saving your data, you're you're producing a lot of value back, back in, uh, well, back to the future. <laughs> When you start doing AI on top of that data, you are doing yourself a service, your future self a service. Yeah, I was thinking as simply as different schema configurations within the same product. Like you take Jira, and you you observe how different companies use Jira, and it's like a night and day between two companies. And then then the question follows: like, how can anyone build any like remotely functional AI implementation of two data schemas? But I, I wish I wish AI could help us there as well before we get into the actual actual topic. Yeah, we've been my personally, I've been doing a lot of digging around the Jira data model and and then some of their competitors as well. And as you said, typically for a human, it looks like every single project is different. But when you really feed it to some of the normalizing algorithms that that uh, can be used in there, that's been generated by AI, not by a human, they they, they behave quite nicely actually. So, so that's also one one of the powers of AI that for for humans it looks totally incomprehensible. And how are these even comparable? And uh, all the software projects are different. But when you really start massaging the data and giving it to kind of self-learning systems, you suddenly realize that well, most software projects are actually surprisingly similar. Wow. Maybe not with the parameters that we understand, but mm, exactly. Yeah. Lauri, any thoughts around that? Yeah, I think like mm, coming to that from just just a bit of different angle like usually if you think about the data and the model um, usually if even if it's a bad model a machine learning model but you have excellent data uh, even that can kind of feed a good line 
to give some kind of prediction, give some kind of understanding of it. But if you have really bad data, it doesn't really help much that you have um, a really good model because it's just so messy, like all the values are like here and there. So that's why I think, um, well, if we talk about a vendor like Jira and the data that they produce, they have so they have pretty well well they have pretty well streamlined um projects in there and the way that you fill in everything but then again there's a lot of that you can configure your sh- yourself so th- there comes it like you you can of course always help it um you can o- always help it by like standardizing how you use jira so it produces better data for you but then of course if you you know, may run it as as Henry said. If you run it through like a, some a, AI model or some like neural network, it kind of st- kind of starts to understand those anomalies. Like even though it's weird, it can kind of understand the weirdness. But of course, the data, if it's systematic, it always helps. Yeah, and of course, of course, if you have a chaotic process, you cannot fix it by AI telling you it's a chaotic process. So, so if you if, if you think about it, you're you're giving an AI system data to hey, please interpret what what the heck is going on in our software product. The end result may be that hey, hey, it's chaos. You don't have a formal process. You're just doing things here and there. That might be the the like truth behind it. There's also those kind of software projects sometimes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We have avoided one specific term around this conversation. I don't know if it's for reason or inadvertently. RPA, robotic process automation. When when we try to think about some solutions that we could solve with AI, uh, I think the road meets with RPA in a way that if you just simply think some kind of an automations, uh, the solution could be achieved with both ways and actually the the paths of them like ai and rpa they are coming together in a way that nowadays if you have some rpa tool that um, maybe tests your um, ui system or anything already some of the vendors are utilizing ai they are using computer vision to build these tools and that's like if if the vendor already is using the AI, it's really beneficial for the people using the product because it has a lot of data. It has been it has seen so many instances. So instead of telling uh, the operation that go here, this is a login window. Do 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 this and that. It it doesn't really see the operations as a coordination. So it can actually understand with computer vision what's on the screen so maybe it can automatically do something but at least it can recommend some kind of workflows for you yeah that's typically what but you also also do when you ask about ask experts about help on on your kind of systems that you want them to tell some best practices for example the hey how do i solve this chaos and what can i do this is something that also, an older term basically for AI was expert systems that was used. That they, they can replicate the way the experts can tell you the best ways to do things. And this is also something that's resurfacing now with AI technology. And going back into this RPA, RPA corner as well, my thoughts on the field are kind of, kind of mixed in there. That I think RPA is interesting in the way that, that it mimics human behavior. It takes this other other definition of AI that we want to make uh, 
piece of software that mimics human behavior in software as easily as possible and make it easy to for developers to use and kind of guide that AI in the right places. So it, it's kind of kind of the hands of the computer system that the RPA is currently doing behaves that we want it to behave the same way as uh, humans do in different software systems. And I, I think that's an interesting field of developing as it will probably lead to some kind of convergence in, in the, for example, uh, user interfaces in there that, that humans and machines can use the same interfaces. And uh, I think that's quite interesting times. There are already physical robots that are taught in the way that you take a, like a fresh robot out of the box and then you basically move the limb of the robot by your own hand and you teach the the sequence of movement and, and sort of limits of the physical space. Um, so assisted training. Um, maybe Maybe there's something similar for RPA where you simply show the places and then somehow they figure it out um going back to the devops and looking into into this like the different definitions of ai so far that we have related where would you be most likely to already see ai in action um in the realm of devops well one thing one thing is uh a lot, a lot of stuff. For example, in in linters and editors is is something that's that's already using AI. There's a lot of examples in these in, in in editors that you don't even know they are using AI. For example, code completion tools that tell you that hey, you are probably trying to type something like this. It, it hasn't been like a clear evolution that says hey, now we are using AI. Try it out. No, before they've just used like statistical maps on this is the most probable thing that you're doing. And then behind the background, without even telling you, many companies have built quite complex predictive models on what code should look, look like and kind of enhance that experience even without you knowing. So there's a lot of tools. Well, probably I think most of you guys have, when we're not talking about even code, we are talking about PowerPoint or we're talking about Word. They also have a quite powerful predictive tooling, predicting the way that you're writing text. So those are also nowadays powered by, well, maybe, I don't know the specific techniques, but some kind of AI or ML models in there. Yeah, and I think, um, well, to explain for someone who in the morning opens a terminal and just uses Vim in there and he just closes the <laughs> terminal after after eight hours, just spends the whole day in there. For that kind of person, it's pretty, um, it sounds gimmicky if you say that. Uh, just use this code completion uh, tool that uh, uses AI. Uh, but what is good to understand in there that the AI well, it can suggest you by the past experiences of other users too, like what probably you want to do, but also, well, you could accomplish that somehow without an AI too, but AI would give a lot more context to it. So making it more powerful. So it's it kind of understands what kind of projects you are working on and it can, based on that, give you the completions and recommendations on what to do. Yeah, for example, in, in my daily job, uh, I work with a company called Kentila. What we, for example, do with AI in here is that uh, we we do the typical uh, looking at your test cases and, and see what's going on, but actually digging through your company's test cases and showing you how similar are your test cases compared to what everybody else has written in the company. Or, or, or is there something, that, hey, you've written something that nobody else has ever written in a test, test code. Are you sure that this is right? Or are you sure that this is what you want to do, for example? So giving you these kind of hinters and pointers on what's actually going on there is, is quite a powerful tool with AI. Hi again. 
Henry and Lauri have talked a lot about test automation, and it is the fact that test automation is an inseparable part of modern software engineering. It reduces the cost of quality control by more than 25% during the project and 75% in the long run. Usually, test automation pays back for itself on average in six months. I encourage you to read more from our guide to test automation and robot framework. You can find the link at the show notes. Now, let's get back to the discussion. Well, on, on tools that we usually rely on vendors to give us, like think about um, code analytics and all that, um, I think it's really, really important that those vendors adapt AI in their systems. Because if, if you try to do some kind of code analysis only inside your company and you have some kind of tool in that, uh, it kind of knows the situations only related to your teams and your companies. But if, if the, we, it, it applies to a lot of different companies, but code analysis tools are a good example of that, that it, it knows what like it learns from a different kind of organizations, well performing and who have poor performance. So it's important that the tools that we use actually utilize AI and data when they are built. Yeah, I think you have a really good point that you want to have data from all the different companies to kind of do the comparisons on, on what are the best practices, but then you want to have the context of your own company applied on top of that. And I think that's where AI tools are now taking over. And that's why you see them everywhere, that they are not just like, hey, we, we as a company have these best practices for JavaScript and we implemented that as a file and everybody should use it as, as it's been for example in javascript side that google and facebook standards have become the de facto standards as everybody just took those linters as, as they were available as open source but now, now that they can kind of we can take that as the basis and then take your context on top of that and let the system do the recommendations based on what you've actually been doing i write uh, quite a bit of texts as a marketeer and i use grammarly and grammarly has an editor where when you start writing uh, it will ask a few, a few sort of attributes about the text, like is your audience public or general or expert or or scientific? And what are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to inform them or persuade them or or entertain them or whatever? And and then when you when you start writing or you basically paste your first draft into the editor, it will suggest what you should do with the text, and it can do relatively complicated things like refactor entire long sentences um, which can take like for instance two lines and say you shouldn't say it this way but you sh should say it that, that this way and then it asks shall I correct this for you so effectively they are refactoring English language into, into achieving what you want in a better way what about refactoring code using AI yeah, I think that's all already happening through linters and editors, pretty much, and doing the kind of same thing. And it now just becoming more and more context sensitive. I, I think it's even been the norm in in like uh, refactoring code, and uh, for, since the nineties, there's been a lot of linters. Even then, uh, even they've been using it. Some of these new AI methods or ML methods or what statistical methods or whatever you want to say them. Uh, in in coding, it's been. I think even more accepted than in, in, in typical public writing. And, and kind of all of that historical data has led to the fact that now we have VS Code and all the others which have super powerful plugins for that. 
and uh, of course, because we are still training them in the same way that you are training Grammarly, you are telling them what you are trying to achieve with this text and giving them that also as a learning material. Yeah. Yeah, and actually to draw some kind of <clears throat> bridge from that Grammarly to, <clears throat> excuse me, to draw some kind of bridge from uh, Grammarly to like code linters using AI, because when Grammarly tells you like, maybe you wanted to write it in this way, uh, they also want to have some kind of data of the people reading it. So they want to have like, they want to know what people want to read, what keeps people reading this or on this side or engaged with this information. And that kind of like end-to-end -end process is important when you think about um, AI in linters uh, because, or code completion tools, because different contexts require different kinds of, well, use cases. So you you want it to have a like, okay, is this like a test? Are you writing a test here? Or is this gonna be just a part of your CI CD pipeline? So to like have, have even though like something like a lincher or code completion tools, they are like a small part, but they can utilize from the end to end like process, like from a lot of different data. Again, it's my obligation to bring up terms that that you guys are approaching, but not not stating out loud. And uh, I know that we are probably alienating some of the audience by by using the ops suffix for for something. Uh, and but the, but there is this ML ops, and I I'll stop there and let you continue from there because i i don't know your personal point of view to this this star ops approach but what about the ml ops um i think like uh, two years ago when uh, uh machine learning started to be like really 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 popular i saw some terms that uh we because we usually put like DevSecOps, which is like security in DevOps operations, and then we have. So I saw like flying around a term like DevMLOps, but I think that died quite quickly because from the data science side, there started to come this uh, machine learning ops, MLOps, or term that is gaining popularity nowadays, and there's actually in Finland maybe one or two companies, really few companies that are actually doing this. And to explain it is that it's trying to bring together the technical and the cultural and the, all the silos together that work in the data science field. So till this point, if you look at the data science point of, uh, data scientist point of view, he wants to get a clean set of data that he can build a model into. But to think where that data comes from, it requires data engineers and data. Um, well, now there's, there has been a lot of talk. It actually was kind of a joke that when you work on machine learning projects, it's going to be 80% of data preparation, which includes uh, data acquisition and then the cleaning and all that. And then only 20% is focused on the actual model model building when you build a machine learning model and that's actually even though it's it it started a bit as a joke but when you build these build big systems that productionalize some ml models 
uh, it became quite quite a true. So I think what MLOps is trying to do is to build smarter systems in here that we have good systems that acquire the data automatically, of course, and then clean the data and actually make sure that it's good quality data. And then there's good versioning in it. And so the data scientists can use, use the data like continuously. They can rely on it that it's always clean. It com comes, there's a lot of data. And this is because lately we have noticed that the biggest or really big factor in the accuracy of these models is the amount and the quality of this data. So actually then I think what, how we see this in action, there's, I think first, first companies were so quick to uh, hire data scientists when they heard about machine learning and AI, then they realized that we need the data. We need to hire the data engineers now, but now what I'm seeing also alongside the data engineers, the people want to hire, they want to hire machine learning engineers, which kind of tie these DevOps together that they are like DevOps um, processes together in the machine learning world that can actually have the knowledge how to productionalize the data and how to enhance uh, productionalize the models and the data and how to enhance the data that comes from the models in the production back to the feedback loop into the operations. So I think MLOps is it, it has similarities with the DevOps, like all this continuous, everything has to be continuous. So, but brought into that like data sense. These all, all MLOps, AIOps, DevOps, and all of these are kind of, uh, in, in my opinion, kind of talking about the process of making something. DevOps is about what's the process of actually making software in an efficient way and what's the culture and how the people interact in there. And uh, MLOps is kind of the same same thing that you're actually doing the tools for the actual process to make it better and how do you actually smoothly make AI and machine learning models out of there and how to massage the data and addressing all of those pain points with automation in there so the humans don't have to do the same things over and over again. And the same thing is happening in these uh, multiple fields. And now it's time for AI to get the automation treatment in there, which which was something that we kind of also talked a little bit about. Showed out, for example, to finish uh, Valohai, which is uh, doing a lot of stuff on automating all of the infrastructure around AI, for example, and, and getting that data in there. So as we said, engineering is, is still in these new fields, the thing that takes a lot of time in the actual development cycle and how to get get that in there, how to get the data in and how to get all of that stuff in. There's a lot of great solutions now there and we are, we are slowly building on top of that. So the role of AI is, is evolving in all the companies now. It's not just a gimmick anymore and it's much more easier to take into uses. There's a lot of tooling around it. Yeah, and I, I think like, um, well, the traditional data scientists <clears throat> that I've, I've met, um, they they don't often come from a software engineering background. Uh, a lot of data scientists that I meet, they, they might be chemical engineers, bioengineers, or just pure mathematicians. And their aim in their work is just to, <clears throat> they know all the math behind it. They just not need to know how to, they need to learn enough code to actually implement a machine to do these things. So um, if, you, if you have worked in a soft, software field, you understand that there's a lot that comes with it. Like you have to 
well, nowadays everyone is working in cloud. You have to understand how the system works. You have to have a monitoring systems there. And then because the data science field or to be a data scientist, it's, it requires a lot of you. Like you, you need to understand a lot that is not software engineering. So to bring this kind of MLOps thinking where the other engineers around the, uh, the data scientist who actually builds the model <clears throat> help help to actually build the system that what they work on, what the data scientists work on can actually have the biggest impact. Yeah, it sounds to me like once the roles begin to diverge from each other, so you end up having this kind of uh, more hardcore machine learning and artificial intelligence specialists who who are not required to know the business um, domain that deeply. And then conversely, you will end up having the business analysts who know the particular business domain particularly well, but they don't have to understand the technology that much because they have the technologists. So it's, it's really, really interesting how these these different roles that together try to get the job done because they won't be able to comprehend the whole domain independently. And somehow it feels to me, I think uh, some either of you had had a note uh, in preparation that if we can automate something with any, like practically with any technique, then the technique is not relevant. The fact that we achieve our task is the relevant part. Yeah, exactly. I think that comes to that, that, well, as AI became so quickly, so popular, and there's a huge market, of course, like having knowledge in AI and machine learning, um, many people have that as an aim then, like they want to have a slice of that cake in the market, like they want to have expertise. And from that, you you try, try to find, um, like you, you want to think that any solution would be um, solved or any problem could be solved with utilizing AI, but that's a bit, bit of an unhealthy uh, way of thinking because there's a lot of things as we've talked in this uh, podcast also that um, AI comes with a lot of automation tasks. So if you can do it without AI, then you, you should be happy with it. Like it's probably, if you can do it without AI, probably it's way less work. And you, you, if, if, and the important thing is that if you don't AI to solve something, then you probably don't need that much of data to solve it. So you can cut one layer out of the solution. So eventually it will all boil down to putting different solutions that solve the same problem and just let them compete and see which solves is the best way irrespective of how it's built. Yeah, it could be that people using pen and paper might be the best solution. Yeah. I was about to say we have been quite a dev heavy now, but now I think back to the conversation and oh boy, we have also talked about data labeling and the importance of data, um, which goes back to the operations as well. But maybe to round up and start sort of getting to the end of end of the session is talk a little bit more about AI in the DevOps ops side. Well, they're looking at the operation side. There's, there's of course, a huge amount of, amount of stuff that AI can now do. And many of the best companies use AI to optimize their ops side as well. 
that's not really, but there isn't too many of these generic frameworks in there. For example, looking at uh, how, how do you manage a lot of really difficult ops environments where you have thousands of containers, for example, and which should be killed, which should be not. There's actually, well, okay, there's actually another that I think about it. There's actually quite a lot of tooling that, for example, you say AI to find you some containers which have hanged in your ops environment, which have which should be probably killed and, and all, all of this uh, this kind of analytics tools on these complex environments like your net internal networks between your servers and all of these there's a lot of tooling that uses ai to analyze what's actually going on there and point you to the right direction or maybe even do those uh, operations by themselves uh, like uh, optimizing your actual running of your business in there and i think most of these like new data center providers for example are using a lot of this stuff to optimize where you're actually getting your resources from and where do, where do all, all of your actual processes live in the rack and there's there's a lot of ai also going in there but i, I think they mostly call it ml or statistics yeah maybe like the ops side of ai would be well mostly you see it in decision making when you need to well lead lead anything or like if you need to manage your teams or your clusters with data then there there comes the utilization that it can actually like understand the environment and the biggest part of it is like the predictions and predictive maintenance which is like really important and cost saving that you can actually predict something bad happening before it happens and that that's like a key key factor you want to know you you want to know if your systems can handle or if if your systems are under the risk of not handling the workload or even your software development team or any team uh, data could help in that it could tell you beforehand that this is something that is not really smart smart thing to do yeah, uh, that's actually an interesting thing that I've noticed with, for example, predictive maintenance. It also requires a big culture shift to take into use sometimes as basically you're not trusting the algorithm to tell you that this machine hasn't broken yet, but, but you should uh, now change it to avoid disaster later uh, and kind of trusting that machine that this is actually saving you money that I now go in and switch, switch up perfectly good working computer, for example, from a rack before it fails. It is something that requires, of course, a big, big shift in, in typically in the human side of the culture that we, we trust that algorithm that it is actually right. Yeah, in aviation, there are two terms. One is uh, safe life and one is a fail safe. And, and probably in the upside, fail safe is more ingrained of a thinking than, than safe life thinking. But what you are describing is effectively a safe life thinking. Yeah, and uh, I'm guessing that's something that's going to change also in there, that you're starting to focus on different things in there and keeping it in, in a certain certain working order and fail-saving or flight-saving stuff before anything happens and making sure it's always healthy. Of course, then there's the other side that some companies might go the other route and they can take the maximum out of their resources before it fails, for example. There might be two tiers of operation that they use AI to really, really, really push their systems hard and take out every single bit of stuff and then break break it and then change into new components, for example, or something else. There's a lot of places where you could optimize with AI and not always with the, uh, how could you say, it? The first thought that comes into mind, there might be some really other intuitive ways to do it. Uh, and for example, Netflix is doing a lot of chaos engineering that they're, they're talking about is that they're just randomly 
shutting down machines in their infrastructure and seeing what happens. And they, because of the way that they've engineered their whole infrastructure, it's totally resilient on that, that some random machine, just somebody goes in, go, go, a random AI system goes in and shuts down something and the system still works because they've totally ingrained that into their daily philosophy and all of the like stuff that they have there. So they, they've managed it in such a way that it doesn't even matter. And they want to check that it doesn't matter in the system. So there's a lot of different ways of going around this. Yeah, and I, I think like if if you want a co- complete automation or like want to give the full control to AI, we would in a way also want to like fail safe that the machine knows how it's probably gonna fail. Mm-hmm. And uh, through that, when it actually happens, hopefully it, it could have some kind of solutions or recommendations how to then fix it so if it's something possible that a machine could do then it could actually like do the self-maintenance there yeah and for example just that we, we take every single ounce of uh, ounce of power out of our computers when they fail we have the data that okay probably this failed because the power supply failed 90 percent chance that the power supply was the part that failed then we could go and switch that and then again start doing it if if that was the most typical thing not the same but it reminds me of the one of the cars probably 20 years ago there was a new car model and I, I don't want to say the brand here but it was one of the safety systems the airbag or esp or abs and and there was basically a hardware that controls it but the problem was that as soon as you initialize the the software on that hardware, the software crashed at about 0.9 seconds of, of uptime. And they really didn't have time to fix it. But the good thing was that that subsystem was able to reboot itself and initialize itself in 0.01 second. So only if you automatically made it reboot every less than 0.9 seconds, everything was fine. And the likeliness of you getting into an accident during that a fraction of a second of a reboot was so minuscule that it wasn't a big of an issue. I want to leave some time for our rapid fire questions for both of you. But before going there, I'd like to give you floor one more time for you to just uh, wrap up this topic for your last words. And then we take our rapid fire questions with each one of you. Yeah, I think what what we have talked a lot is that if if you if you are thinking about anything AI or if you are interested on it or already do it, it's good to think about everything around it also. So first of all, well, do you, do you need need AI to solve these problems? And to actually solve some problems with AI, you need to have a good data solutions or data infrastructures in place. So. Even though it's it's some something that it, it's really shiny at the moment, and it's like the field of AI and data science is so so hot right now, it would be fun to jump jump into it. But it's never or almost never the first solution. There's so many things that needs to be happening before before you utilize it. Thank you, Henry. I think we've talked a lot about AI here and. Uh... In, in 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 the end, it's well in a sense it's not nothing special. It's still just a little piece of software that runs in your infrastructure. And the problem points of implementing AI will not be the actual AI algorithms. Typically, of course, you might have to buy better PCs or more memory or something pretty trivial problems to solve like that. But the main problems come from your culture and how to handle data. How have you formulated data? Have you done it in a certain way? 
is there a standardized way of handling things which can be easily understood with a reasonable amount of effort for implementing the AI? And the same in the other cultural shifts that we've been talking about, the how do you then actually utilize the data that the AI produces? Do you believe the numbers that come out of it? And can you verify that, that that's actually what's happening in there? So so, so I, I think AI in itself is, might just be a function call in, in, in your program code, but getting that function call to work requires a lot of cultural stuff and a lot of changes in your organization, which you need to be mindful of. And when you get that function call working, it might be super powerful for your business. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, we have a habit of asking the same questions for every visitor that ever comes to our, our podcast. I start with Henry um, and try to just answer without thinking too long. Fill in the following sentence. DevOps is? DevOps is uh, codifying culture into automation for humans. What three questions do you ask to tell if a company needs your help? Uh, how reliable is your deployment? Uh, do you trust your software? Uh, do you have any problems in, in, in getting your software to be used reliably when your customers are actually using it? I'm in the testing here, so I have a lot of reliability and trust questions in there you are called to help your customer what's the first thing you do uh, first things first we want to understand what you what you do as a customer what's the kind of process what's the culture as we saw, said the, the thing that you're building is built by humans i want to understand how you do it what is something people often get wrong about is it then test automation uh, one thing is that it, it, it's it's kind of like hey i want to buy one devops please it solves my problems when i buy one devops it's not that it's, it's culture change it's technology it's automation it, it's uh, it, it's a change in the habits that you do. What trends or new things you would like to see become mainstream? Uh, people are talking about data-driven organization. That's still super difficult for people to actually do. There are really few data-driven organizations. I'd like to see that become more mainstream. What is your secret personal productivity tool? I actually use, still use Post-its, a lot of them. Super. What book have you completed most recently? Uh, most recently... Uh, I completed Echopraxia, a sci-fi book about basically consciousness. Really good. Cool. What is something that brings great joy in your life? Going outdoors now is super nice outside. What is something that you are grateful for right now? Hey, being on this podcast and uh, talking to you guys, talking to some professionals on, in topics that I'm interested in. Cool. Lauri, the same questions for you. Fill in the following sentence. DevOps is... Um, DevOps is, well, the boring term is always like bringing in dev, dev and ops, but nowadays what I think the importance of DevOps is to bring the ops inside the DevOps. So we need to talk about the cultural side in the DevOps. What three questions do you ask to tell if a company needs your help? Um, I'm going to adjust this a bit too, because I mainly work as a data engineer, but of course in um, DevOps environments. So... <clears throat> Three things I usually ask are like, what and how do you, from where and how do you collect your data? Where where is it? And is it available for everyone? And is it always up to date? You are called to help your customer with DevOps. What's the first thing you do? First thing I do is to actually see how how they are using the systems. Like I want to see, because... I, I can ask them what what tools they have in use, but there's thousands of ways of using those. I want to know how they are using them. What is something people often get wrong about DevOps? 
often, often people silo DevOps into small things. Like they, they think it's like, yeah, it's only like building CI, CD pipeline. So it's just test automation. But I, I think like a big part of it's like, it's the cultural change. Well, it, it is in the name, but it's not emphasized as much as the technical sides. What trends or new things you would like to see become mainstream? Um, well, probably it became a bit clear in this podcast, but I like the rise of ML ops because I, I think with all the machine learning and data science and all that, the growth has been so small because there's huge silos. So I love to see people, as Henry told, um, Valohai doing ML ops operations in Finland. So I'm excited for that. What is your secret personal productivity tool? This must be quite unusual. But I think my guilty pleasure playlists are what gets me going going in the morning. Like I think my best best code I've written is like listening to Taylor Swift or Ariana Grande or something like that. And I think working in Finland where the music is a bit heavy and all that, this is a quite unusual answer. <laughs> what book have you completed most recently? I just recently went on a binge on uh, Patrick Lencioni. And the latest book I finished was the the ideal team player. Hmm. What is something that brings great joy in your life? I can find joy in basically anything. Like I can find joy in like daily day to day like life in day to day life in work and just people around me. That's just that's just what I need. And lastly, what is something you are grateful for right now? Right now, I'm grateful for seeing that. There's a lot of communities in tech coming together and actually like during these times that people have have worked re- remotely, there has been a lot of new meetups that have been generated like in even in a niche, niche field because the barrier to entry to have some kind of meetup is so low at the moment. So different kind of experts are coming together at the moment and it's super super cool to see thank you and thank you henry and thank you laurie for joining very very pleasant conversation and i'm, I'm convinced that that the audience finds uh, something for them to think about uh, whatever role they are coming from in which level of of their organization or their responsibility for so thanks a lot for joining and i'm i'm pretty sure that we will hear from each other in the future as well thank you for listening You can find links to the social media profiles of Henry and Lauri in the show notes alongside the referred materials about the topic. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating on your platform. It means the world to us. Also, check out our other episodes for interesting and exciting talks. Before we finish, I want to return the microphone to Lauri and Henry for proper introductions. I say to you now, take care of yourselves and don't forget the rise of MLOps. Hello, I'm Lauri Huhta. I'm a DevOps consultant slash a data engineer at Efficode Finland. And I mainly work with all kinds of databases, data pipelines, storage systems, and data infrastructures. But I came into this field through like data science, aiming uh, doing data, data scientist, machine learning stuff. So I like to like to wear both of the hats sometimes and at Efficode I've brought in some of the DevOps principalities into my work.
Hi, I'm Henry. Henry Terho. I'm currently working at Kentinel as a chief R&D evangelist. So doing a lot of community outreach and doing a lot of research. So a lot of like these uh, joint projects with universities and uh, other companies and figuring out what could be the best new technologies in cloud testing and others. And here I am talking about AI and uh, all the other stuff with these other two big guys. 